Hey, it's me, Susie Singer-Carter from Love Conquers Alls. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, which is what this podcast you're about to listen to is on, it's super easy to make a podcast. It's free, has creation tools, they distribute for you, you can make money, and with no minimum uh, listenership, and uh, it's got everything in one place. It's great. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and let me know how it goes. I think you're going to like it. And now, here's our podcast. Hi, everybody. Before we start the podcast, Cassie and I would just like to send our best regards for a speedy recovery to Dr. Etling, who has been in the hospital and is recovering. And we just hope that he is doing well and we get to have him back on the show soon. So please feel better and know that we're sending prayers your way. And now, please enjoy Love Conquers Alls. When the world has got you down. Alzheimer's sucks. It's an equal opportunity disease that chips away at everything we hold dear. And to date, there's no cure. So until there is, we continue to fight with the most powerful tool in our arsenal, love. This is Love Conquers Alls, a real and really positive podcast that takes a deep dive into everything Alzheimer's, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And now, here's your hosts, Susie Singer-Carter and Cassie Cruz. Welcome, I'm Cassie Cruz. And I'm Susie Singer-Carter, and this is Love Conquers Alls. We are the podcast that takes a deep dive into everything Alzheimer's. We keep it real and really positive, sharing fears, feelings, and frustrations. And the latest news and resources and fabulous guests. Like and the one we have today. Yes. Susie, yes. Please <laughs> tell us all about him. Our guest today is an amazing, wonderful human being named Dr. Ted Etling, who is the Director of Neuropsychology and Cognitive Rehabilitation at the Arizona Neurology Associates. Is that correct, Ted? That is correct. Yay. Phew. That's a lot of words in the morning. It um, sure is. <laughs> and um, the, the cool thing about Ted is that um, his, he is now focused primarily on Alzheimer's and dementia. So we're really lucky to have him as a guest. And, and you're a Buckeye fan, so we're, we're, we're all winners on that I one. know. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're really, really excited to hear about neuropsychology. That's my first question. <laughs> so neuropsychology is actually a very small field, and uh, we basically practice neurology the way it would have been practiced many, many decades ago. A lot of people don't realize we haven't had MRIs and CAT scans until the 70s. So there was really, it was difficult to look underneath the skull and see what was going on. A, a lot of neurologists in the old days would have to do cognitive testing to deter, determine, A, is there a problem? B, where is that problem probably located? So that's what I do is I do a lot of cognitive testing that checks ability to pay attention, ability to remember information, uh, visual perception, expressive language, comprehension, as well as executive functioning, which is your ability to problem solve, use a strategy to solve a problem, flexibility in your thinking, reasoning, judgment, things of like that. Can you, um, can you dive into what that means a little bit when compared to a, a healthy um, brain and one that might have dementia or waning in that way? Sure, sure. So all of these functions, 
just like physically, unfortunately, we change. It's a little bit of a downward trend as we go along in life and get older. Same thing with cognitive skills. There's going to be a decline, but there's a decline that's normal for someone's age and education level. And then there's a decline that might be beyond that. And it's when we start seeing a uh, decline in memory and some of these other functions that I mentioned is when we start to realize we may have have dementia on our hands and then we try to figure out what type. And everybody, everything's on a spectrum. And so you can't just look at, 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 at data always. Right. To well, identify and you're exactly right. I mean, in terms of if, if imaging could tell us if someone has Alzheimer's or not, you wouldn't really need me. Um, now, you will see some abnormalities, but they can occur for a lot of different reasons. But basically, uh, especially in the early to mid stages, imaging really isn't going to tell you very much. And even if it did, even if there was a lot of atrophy to the brain or some abnormalities, it's still not going to tell you how that has impacted the person's functioning. Because I've seen people with areas of atrophy that hand, hand, handle memory Yet somehow or another, they're remembering a lot of information, an appropriate amount. And it just means that some other area of their brain has started to compensate for some reason. So even so, though we have, we have the ability to look at physical changes in the brain, and that's what an MRI is for, it's still not going to tell you how that change is impacting that person from their ability to remember information, problem solve, things like that. So how is Alzheimer's? really diagnosed what is that process so normally someone will go in to make an appointment with their primary care physician they end up mentioning that i've been forgetting a lot of information or often often it's the person's spouse or adult children that are there at the appointment who are mentioning it and then they get referred to a neurologist the same story happens again they'll do sort of a neurological exam they'll even do a very brief version of what i do which is called the mini mental status exam. They'll give them three words to remember. They'll ask them to spell a word backwards and do different things like that. It takes about five minutes. Just a little screener to see if there's anything to, to worry about. But in the end, they'll end up sending them to me as well as sending them for MRIs, Caskins, because you want to rule out, has there been a stroke that we didn't notice? Send them for EEGs to make sure that they aren't having seizure activity that they're not aware of things like that. But in the end, they'll come to me where I do the testing and determine, is this memory loss or other changes in those other domains that I mentioned earlier? Are these uh, inappropriate for their age or are they age appropriate? I've heard that it's very difficult to actually diagnose Alzheimer's. So the dementia is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different kinds of dementias. Alzheimer's makes up the... Uh, the majority of the dementias. It makes up about 65, 70% is sort of the estimate. There are even some different variants of Alzheimer's as well that are pretty rare. But the other 30% tend to be made up of vascular dementia. This is a degradation in thinking skills that's due to um, strokes, transient uh, ischemic attacks or many strokes. A lot of little vascular things that are going on. Lewy bodies, which has a lot of motor issues. It looks a lot like Parkinson's at first. And frontal temporal dementia, which tends to start with uh, a lot of behavioral personality changes. 
lots of difficulties finding words and language issues and the executive functioning issues with they just aren't able to organize their day and, and plan and problem solve and things like that. The second most popular one that you hear about a lot is the Louis body. And, right. and, I, and it seems to manifest, am I wrong, quick, more, much, in a much more rapid pace? I've never uh, even heard of it. Wow. So Louis bodies is, is very difficult to treat. It does have a faster course than uh, Alzheimer's. And um, it, it's really kind of particularly nasty. It tends to start a lot with some visual hallucinations, and they can be very detailed, and it can be very disturbing. For the patient and their family, they're seeing bugs crawling on the walls, animals on the floor, people, sometimes family, sometimes their family that are past, and sometimes it's strangers. There's some sleep disruptive behaviors. We call REM sleep disruptive behaviors where they have very vivid dreams and they'll get up and reenact the dreams. As um, They may think someone's at the door. They'll get up to answer the door. They may think someone's in the house and feel paranoid and go get the gun, walk around the house, things like of that nature. Um, but they also have some cognitive decline as well. But there's usually some Parkinsonian type of tremors or uh, shuffling gait like you would see with Parkinson's. It's hard to tell the two apart sometimes because Parkinson's patients can also develop a type of dementia that's different from Lewy bodies. Right. Yeah, you see a lot of like athletes. That's yeah. what we saw with Muhammad Ali and things like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that most likely all the jarring to the head ca- caused some of these things, sure. Can I still be confused about how you diagnose Alzheimer's? I'm yes. sorry. I, 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 you, so, you can do I, so, I, no, please. I'm confused about it still. I don't know if I really, I, I know you said a whole bunch of answers, but can right. you tell <laughs> yeah, it a little a, bit more for us dummies yeah, over yeah. here? So yeah, let me give you some more uh, something more specific to hold on to. So with say with attention concentration um now i normally have an assistant that does all the actual testing i decide which ones to give and then i hand them off to my assistant who does two and a half hours of testing they're called a psychometrist they're trained in administering the test but they might do something like um give you some digits like 917 and you just say them back 917 and then it'll get longer like 6849 six, eight, four, nine, and then it'll get longer to five digits, six digits, seven. We see how far you can go. And then we change it and we say, now we're going to say digits and you're going to say them backwards to me. So nine, one, seven, they'd have to say seven, one, nine, and we get to four digits, five digits. That's an attention concentration type task. In the middle of all that, we may give you 12 words to remember, and then we'll rehearse them with you three times. And then 20 minutes later, say, now we rehearsed some words a little earlier. How many do you remember? We'll read a couple short paragraph stories with a lot of details in it and see how much of it you remember later on and everything. Right. You know, after the testing, they'll end up going back to the neurologist who's really going to talk to them about treatment options. Most of the time, the first go-to is called Aricept or Dinepazil is another word for it. More in the more moderate stages, Namenda or Mamantine is another name for it. Um, and there's some that, Namzeric is sort of a combination. And there's a few others as well. They are supposed to uh, slow down the progression of it. I've seen it work in people. I've seen it not work in people. I've seen it work for a short period of time. I've seen it work for a very long time. So it kind of runs the gamut. Um, 
I don't know how effective they are. I mean, I've, I've seen it work pretty well at times, but now there's still some other medications they're looking at, but you know, it's a long process to get something approved. They're looking at medications that um, reduce inflammation. And some of those are, I think, cancer fighting type drugs, or they, they're used for other things and they're finding there may be a benefit. But um, interestingly, just in the past month, I read an article I think it was out at West Virginia, the university out there where they used ultrasound directed at the plaques in the brain to bombard them and, and dislodge them. And the person had more verbal fluency. They were, their language got better the next, very next day. And wow. they're, slated, they're slated for more of these ultrasound treatments. So there's some things they're trying. Uh, when I counsel with the people after I give them the news, uh, I talk to them about... Um, Exercise, the absolute best thing you can do for your brain. Vitamins B12 and D are very good for the brain. Um, if they're drinking a lot, that'll reduce some of the vitamin B. You mean drinking, so. you mean drinking alcohol? Yeah. Because you want yeah. people to drink water. <laughs> <laughs> right. So some, some of them are drinking so heavy that it reduces vitamin B levels and things oh. like that. Um, but also the Mediterranean diet is getting a lot of notice of, in terms of people that are, have very steep memory decline, um, changing to the diet, which is just less animal fat, um, uh, more vegetables and fruits. A lot of the things we've always, always been told, less red meat. Um, the exercise, the vitamins, and the diet tends to, tends to help. So it would, I, I, you know, and I may be biased, but I think even the neurologists that I work with would, would agree with me that the, the testing that I do is probably the number one thing that they're looking at. Because if, if, if I give someone 12 words to remember and we've, we've rehearsed them three times and they don't remember any of them 20 minutes later, um, we know we've got a problem there. But normally it's not just memory. Usually there's one other domain so what we're looking for to make a diagnosis is, is memory impaired and is executive functioning or language or all three of them impaired? If so, we've, we've got a dementia on our hands and, it, and then it's sort of a process of elimination. Are there any, is there any stroke activity or history uh, in their medical records? No. Um, is there a, a brain tumor or has there been an aneurysm or anything like this? No. The EEGs, are they clear? Is there a lot of uh, seizure activity? Things of that nature. Even the lab test, is there a B12 deficiency or D? We even, we even screen for depression because some people that are severely, severely depressed, a lot of their cognitive functions will end up being depressed as well. So it's really, I think, the neuropsychological evaluation results in combination with the, all the medical testing that rules out any other reason. If there's no other reason, such as a stroke or, or head injuries or, or uh, seizures and things of this nature, we're, we're probably talking about dementia then. Although those other things can all cause dementia. Sure. In some uh, circumstances, there's fluid on the brain that can be drained, and then right. those those um, manifestations leave 
And so, yeah, you, and you're referring to what we call normal pressure hydrocephalus. Exactly. Of, uh, that was uh, the words I was thinking of. <laughs> I, I knew. I knew you were. Could you say those words again, though, Ted? Yeah, I, I knew you were. I was just showing off. You know, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we call it NPH or normal pressure hydrocephalus. The, the, the normal kind of word kind of throws people off. It's not normal, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but this is where, you know, the brain is cushioned by cerebral spinal fluid and there's ventricles or there's these sort of aqueducts inside the brain that hold fluid too. And they, they, they serve to protect the brain from any jarring and things like that. But sometimes we're accumulating too much. And so the ventricles will be enlarged. And so it's what you kind of hear uh, from lay people. You'd hear water on the brain would be another word for it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, this can cause, usually the trifecta is there's gait issues. So they'll, ha they'll feel, feel unsteady. So their gait gets very wide. And they have urinary incontinence as well as memory loss and some other cognitive issues too. Now that can be diagnosed. Now that definitely can be diagnosed with an MRI. It's really the only way to tell um, a certain kind of an MRI called a Cineflow, um, which uh, is able to specifically tell you if there's NPH or not. If there is, they can put a shunt in, which drains that excess fluid continually off into your belly so that you can absorb it and get rid of it normally and everything. If it has, if NPH has not been present for too long, yes, your cognitive skills should return. If it's there too long and nobody does anything about it for a long time, it could cause some permanent damage for sure. That, that's so important because I know my mom was tested for that. And I know obviously she did not have that. She has Alzheimer's, you know, however, I had, sure. I do know a few other friends whose parents had that and were you know delighted right. in a way because it, it did it their cognitive deficiency turned around and i think if if you have a parent and who's displaying those kinds of uh manifestations then you know you should have out the whole everything checked like you said you know yeah yeah the whole the the whole workup is really needed to to help it helps me to look at all those other tests to say I don't have anything else here I can blame it on. Short of doing an autopsy someday, the only thing I can say is this is probably Alzheimer's. Yeah. So yeah. what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Like so it's very it's so it's not an easy um it's not an easy thing to diagnose. Right. I mean most most of the time the most definitive way is if they did an autopsy and opened up the skull and, and were able to identify plaques in the brain and things like that. Typically you're already by the time you get to that point it's it's very obvious and you don't need to do that so right Ted, is there yeah. any are there any drugs that you know of that that exasperate the the oncoming of alzheimer's um not that i know of but although there's been some research talking about some of the uh the gastro type medications that with you know acid reflux and things like that that there's some some studies suggesting that it may be blocking some chemicals in the brain and causing some dementia issues, but I don't know that that's. I don't think anybody's really settled on that yet. But I like, know there's. Are you talking talk like a Prilosec or Zantac kind of thing? Those kinds of right, drugs. Right. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. Omeprazole, I think, and things like that. Yeah. Can and we, that, of 
that of course just i want to just say this just because in case in case someone's taking it out there i mean it, that would probably be on a long-term basis and you know what with most with most medical issues and i think probably that we're going to find out this is probably true with alzheimer's i don't think there's one one thing that's just one thing that's causing it i think there's probably multiple things and that makes it difficult to identify and also makes it difficult to treat oh, if you don't know exactly what's making this happen. You've mentioned plaque quite a few times on the, in the brain or on the brain or however that's uh, stated. Right. Could you discuss that a little more? So the amyl amyloid plaques, uh, amyloid is a, is a protein found in the brain and uh, there's an abnormal accumulation of it for some reason. I don't think we really know why, but what it does so neurons or, or brain cells are kind of like strands that end and have a gap called a synapse and then the next strand uh, begins and what happens is information will travel through a neuron and drops information into that that synapse that cleft and then the next neuron picks it up anything we're doing that's happening billions of times and and so the plaques are building up in that in that cleft in that synapse and preventing information from going from one neuron onto the next i always think of it as like a, a brain cholesterol and i you know and because it's similar to cholesterol buildup where it's blocking the transference right of whether it's oxygen or blood and in this case it's information Right, it would be a it would be a, normally a neuro a neurochemical. With dementia, you've got these proteins that are building up in that cleft and really causing a lot of problems. I was so fascinated by the story that I saw on the special in 2020, where there were a father and son who were neurosurgeons. The father had a stroke and lost his ability to walk, and the son did a, an experiment, sort of reteaching his father as you would an infant how to walk. Correct. And, yeah. You know, from, and and it worked. Have you? And so I'm wondering yeah. if there's any possibility of that within. So, you know, yeah. I'm familiar with that that case. I actually read about it in a book where um, this he was a professor, if I remember, and uh, had a major stroke. His son, the only thing he could think of from a developmental type of a uh, perspective of to read him like he's a baby he's gonna have to crawl first he's gonna have to sit up then he's gonna have to learn to stand and then take his first steps um uh the the neighbors thought he was being very mean to his dad but he actually got his dad to a point where he was able to go back to teaching again uh what? he died he died three or four years later when they did an autopsy on him Apparently, more than 90% of the nerve fibers that handle uh, movement were destroyed. So off very few nerve fibers that were still al alive after this major stroke, they were able to get him functional again. So, so, they, so they, they, he crawled, then he walked, then he actually taught again. So he's in front of people make, right. speaking and, and, and functioning. Okay, that, right. it just blows me away, and I think okay. it's so fascinating. And I think it's—I mean—that's why I, I, I hold out hope and thinking. Well, is there a way that we can use that that kind of you know that sample that example? Yeah, and we're really talking about. And Ted, I want to ask you this. So, w what I've heard all my life is, oh, we only use ten percent of our brain. What's the other ninety percent doing? Yeah, and, and I think function? that's always 
that's always been a popular thing to say. I, I don't I don't think that that's true at all. I mean, the brain the brain's doing multiple things at the same time and everything too. So, but um, we just don't know enough. We know ten percent of what it does, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and there are definitely some days where I feel like like I'm not even using that much. So that never um, happens to me ever. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> so that's what we do in cognitive rehabilitation now with with dementia with alzheimer's um cognitive rehabilitation techniques may not work very much because you're fighting against a progressive loss of of functioning but in the early stages when we're not sure if this is just memory loss for whatever reason or is this the beginning we will do some uh exercises with them uh um, teach them memory strategies, work on their ability to pay attention. We even do things with, say, you know, I was saying earlier, normally they lose the ability to express themselves, name common objects and things like that. Um, use games like Scrabble and things like that are great for learning how to generate words from a letter and things like that. So, um, That's the practice. The that's, the, that's the interaction that happens. Right. In, in the origins of cognitive rehab are really in traumatic brain injury and uh, rehabbing those things. But we're using them at our clinic with people that have what we call amnestic mild neuro neurocognitive disorder, which is the fancy term for they've got memory loss, but all their other functions, expressive language, executive functioning, things like that are all intact. Mm -hmm. So, so we we try to strengthen their ability to pay attention we teach memory strategies and things like that we try to give them a little bit of hopes and so that um look we don't have to it we we're going to retest in a year or two to see if anything's changed and gotten worse but in the meantime let's not take this lying down let's let's attack this and let's teach some strategies you may be able to use right do you do anything with music because i know for uh, for me music with my mother has been like the gold the gold standard for us it helps me have conversations with her it opens the door and i know right. that it's an interesting phenomenon that it's that this you know she can remember every lyric to every song right and without knowing who i am anymore <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know it's interesting to say that we don't we don't do anything at my clinic however i i saw a uh documentary where a guy went to yes different memory care facilities mm -hmm. and would there were some that were so far advanced and had been almost mute for six, seven, eight months, hadn't really uttered a word. And they'll play some of the big band era um, things from the 40s or, or whatever, 50s and so forth. And all of a sudden, they start talking and they're going, oh, I remember going to, the, to a dance with my girlfriend and we danced to this song. And all of a sudden, you see these people come alive, you know. And the thing that I think probably what this is tapping into is memories that have an emotional component are very, very difficult to leave you. This is one of the problems with treating PTSD because the memory of that trauma is, is emotional. It's right. imprinted. You know what? You almost said the title of it. I love that documentary in case anybody wants to look it up. It's called Alive Inside. And um, there's a one part of it where a woman who's literally has been in bed for the past 15 years and they, you know, her caregivers talks to her every day, but no response. And then they finally put some 
headphones from an iPod over her head and you start seeing her yes. tapping. You remember that yeah, part? It's, yeah, and yes, it's gorgeous. It's a, it's a gorgeous yeah. thing. It yeah. really is. And you know, this is, it's, you can choose to do these things with them or not. And why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we get as much life out of them as, as we can? And we, and we want them to be present as best they can for whatever their situation is as well. That's a great, that's a great thing. That's what your cognitive rehabilitation is really all about, right? Yeah. We're, we're really trying to say that, look, that you're, the old thinking in neurology was that once once an injury, always an injury, your brain's not going to change very much. And it's just not true. While it's not technically a muscle, it does act like a muscle in the sense that the brain can be improved, it can be strengthened, and it can be taught new things. Um, not always... Love that. I love that. Not always easily. I mean, when you think... If you, if you think about just talking or remembering information it's just automatic for you don't really think about the process because it just comes to you think about someone who where now it's not an automatic process anymore this is effortful and those are the people we try to work with and say hey uh, let's teach you a strategy let's practice it so much that now it becomes your new automatic Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And, but well, it's that's very the rehabilitation. We're ta- that's the rehabilitation right. we're talking about with anything. And and, and a, again, I I have to reiterate that you have to you can only do these things in the early stages. When people are later that definitely have Alzheimer's, um, they're not likely to pick up new information. Um, and and insurance won't allow you to work with them anyways. They won't reimburse. Oh. Right. I see. So, what, right. When Susie asked about the music, what about the movement, like dance or some type of uh, repetitive situation or, or follow the leader type of, of connectivity? Do you find that that also is helpful? I think anything that keeps the, you know, we were talking earlier about the things that are um, preventative would, you know, physical exercise is the best thing. And, you know, as we get older, it gets movements get more difficult and we get less coordinated and things. So definitely staying active. And if it's dancing or whatever, um, all good things. And you find a lot of the assisted living places have so many uh, activities. It's incredible how many activities I, I had a old couple in my office one day and I was letting them know how their test results was for the wife. And they kept looking at their watch and I said, uh, do we need to wrap this up? And he said, well, we live down at so-and-so place, so this assisted living facility. says, happy hour starts in about 15 minutes. <laughs> and I said, I said well, well, let's wrap this up. I'll follow you. That's <laughs> awesome. I love that. I love that. That's I said, I had no idea you guys had that much fun in those places. <laughs> hey, is there, any, is there any benefit to learning a new activity? Like for me, I started playing piano a couple years ago right. so, and so it Perfect. becomes a challenge for me and I'm and I you know right. and it's and it's always a new challenge every time I sit down it's a new challenge so yeah it perfect I'll, I'll give you a good analogy of that is if say if you went to the gym and your legs were very strong but your upper body was weak if you just went to the gym and worked out your legs, well, it's not bad for you, but you're already you're working out an area that's already strong. Right. You should work out the areas that are that are weak. Um, it's just that we we do a few things and it's difficult. And we and we put it away and we go back to what's easy for us. So, yeah, learning to play the piano is difficult, but if you just stick with it, yeah, that's the key: is to just keep doing it. And there will be plateaus where you don't feel like you're making progress. 
cognitively in other ways. And then if you stick with it, the brain will figure out a way to get through this if you keep at it. It really does. It really does. And I also started, da- I mean, I've always danced, but I started doing hip hop like six years ago as like kind and of she's really very good at it. I'm really pretty freaking good at it. I got to tell yeah. you, we actually, you love it. we actually, I went and I won a, a, a contest with my crew, you know, and it was like, I, I must, it was the same as winning a, an Academy Award. I couldn't have been more proud because <laughs> who knew I could dance like that, right? That's exciting. And it is. And it becomes like that muscle gets it gets exercised and suddenly like what took me forever to learn. It's like, Whoa, I, I got it in a second now. Well, and you have people learning a, a a foreign language later in life. Also a great example of using an area that probably hasn't gotten a lot of use. Hey, I do have a question for you, but we're going to take a quick little break. Guess what? We're back. We're back. You're listening to Love Conquers All, and we're speaking with Dr. Ted Edling, and he is a neuropsychologist, and we are talking about his focus, which is on Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, you were mentioning some vitamins B12 and D, and and I just like, is that part of our preventative maintenance for our bodies? So we think of how to take better care of ourselves and, and the kind of foods we're eating when you're saying the Mediterranean diet? Right. I, um, I don't know how, how preventative it is, but it's definitely all we have right now in terms of there's been some fairly solid research showing that a Mediterranean diet has a lower rate of people developing dementia and people that are already having memory decline at a, that's steeper than it should be that it's leveling off for some people. And part of that, if you think in terms of a a Mediterranean diet is just another word for less uh, highly fat red meat and more chicken, more fish, uh, vegetables, whole grains, less fried food, more uh, olive oil, less butter, less animal fat, so to speak, that it's very good for the heart. Anything good for the heart's good for the brain because the heart is sending arteries up to the brain so anything that's clogging those or or constricting them like diabetes can do um you're not sending as much healthy oxygenated blood up there right so no matter what all those things are super positive what about sleep i don't know of a correlation of sleep um, causing dementia but you definitely see a lot of sleep disorders with with uh people that have dementia, but also another area where there may be some overlap. We have a lot of people with sleep apnea, which a lot of people think that means disturbed sleep, but it really means it's, yes, it's disturbed, but it's because they're not breathing several times through the night. So they're gasping for air. And a lot of people don't know this. Um, They just know that they feel tired all the time in the morning and, or throughout the day if they have a spouse that's sleeping in the same room with them, then sometimes they'll let them know, hey, you know, you don't breathe for sometimes 30, 45 seconds, and then you gasp for air. So these people end up with a CPAP machine, which, you know, is goes on your face. It helps you breathe. I've seen people with, with untreated sleep apnea for years have memory deficits, and there's a lot of research to show that the cells in the brain, they all do something different. There's different grades of them. The ones that handle memory and the ones in the front of the brain tend to be 
more sensitive to a loss of oxygen than the other cells. So in other words, they'll die first. The ones that don't have enough oxygen. Right, right. Okay. So oxygen right. is a huge is a huge deal. Yeah, so sleep is very important in that in that respect. And if someone's telling you, look, you're gasping for air, you're snoring very heavily, things like this, go get a sleep study and just rule out that make sure you don't have. Now, having said that, it's got to be difficult to sleep with a mask on your face. <laughs> but there's there's actually some surgeries now that can help uh, with people that, that can't or won't wear the mask as well. Yeah. So it's difficult. Yeah. And it's, and it's definitely the opposite of sexy. Let's just face it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, unless, it's unless you like, unless masks are sexy, that's a whole, other, it could be, you know, if you're into cause cosplay or something like that, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you end up looking like you're in that movie alien. Remember that? Movie? Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. You're, you're right. That, that can be tough on a marriage, I but, would it can, but yeah. oxygen without the oxygen, y- you won't ha- you won't be able to be. What made you so passionate about Alzheimer's? What made you dig into that area of expertise? I actually uh, a lot back when I was a became a postdoctorate resident, um, there were less than fifty uh, board certified route positions in the country. So there's not a lot of us. Um, I wanted to actually work with children, and um, but there were probably less than 15 of those sites were pediatric. So it just, even though I didn't initially set out to uh, work with the elderly and, and to specialize in Alzheimer's, life just kept sending, professionally just kept sending me in that direction. And now I just have a huge passion for it because my stepfather uh, died with Alzheimer's and I live in Arizona where we have so many retirees and, um, and I've just grown to really, the elderly are a special group to work with. They're, they have so much to offer and, and I love listening to their stories. Sometimes, um, there's a lot of history to hear from them and, and, uh, that, that population is growing all the time. And so we need to preserve them as much as we can. They have a lot to offer. They're so valuable and really, truly, you know, I, I of course, I'm a champion and my goal in this life would be to see our generations get back together so the young have that opportunity to be around our elders yeah. And, yeah. and to have that camaraderie again. They are us very shortly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Did you, did you care for your uh, stepfather? Um, they didn't have the money to move into assisted living and so it kind of, kind of fell on me and my mom to to do as much as we could especially alzheimer's can be a very 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 long disease right and and it bankrupts so many people and i've seen it happen in my own family so i know that's also part of the reason why i would i'm very motivated to get the conversation out there because like you said the numbers are going to be up and and keep growing and we need to figure out a way that where we can take care of our older generation it it touch it, you know like a lot of illnesses it touches a lot of family members because it falls on the adult children to help make decisions about uh, another person do they life. stay in the, do they stay in the house or should they go to assisted living um, should they continue to drive a car or should they not and things like that and those are just really tough decisions to make in their lives because it, it reduces their independence which sometimes that's all they have left 
Exactly. And they want that. Exactly. They want to have that shred of uh, dignity. You know, you want them to walk, walk with their head high in that too. Right. Right. You know, uh, I think we're, we're, we're wrapping up and I have one uh, last question for you, if I may. Do you okay. foresee an opportunity for us to have a cure in our lifetime? I'm hoping so. And there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of emphasis on it and it's not foreseeably going away. So we, we really need to keep working at it. We'll have you back for sure. Cause we, there's so many questions we didn't. I would, to. I would love to again. And I just want to say, I appreciate you, you guys having me on. Oh, we're so super grateful for you. Thank you. And, um, we want to thank all of you for listening. Um, we really hope that you liked our show. And if you did, please subscribe and share the podcast with others who are dealing with Alzheimer's. And if you have suggestions or comments, please hit us up on social media. And remember, love is powerful. Love is contagious. And love conquers alls. All you gotta do is sing a song. All you gotta do is sing a song. Mm-hmm.